0: Thank you Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Two guests today, as usual. Alex Vitale, a sociologist who studies cops, will explore the reasons they're behaving so brutally against protesters and what we can do to get them under control. And then Ben Tarnoff, co-founder of Logic Magazine, which covers technology, will talk about tech worker organizing. First, a few words about the economy. Wall Street spies a bottom forming in the economic collapse. The evidence for this is rather odd. On Thursday morning, the Department of Labor reported that 1.9 million people applied for unemployment insurance benefits last week. That's the fourth consecutive weekly decline, and the lowest number since the surge began in late March. It's still a massively huge number, almost 10 times the average before the crisis started. Almost 30 million people are drawing benefits. That was down almost a million from the week before, but it too is still a massively huge number, almost 20% of the number of people who were employed before the collapse began. The decline suggests some people are going back to work as states open up, but we'll see how the coronavirus feels about that in a few weeks. Also, ADP, the firm that processes a lot of payroll checks, reported on Wednesday that by their lights, only 2.8 million people lost their jobs in May, which was below what people were expecting. There are technical reasons why this might be an underestimate, but even if it's not, it too is a massively huge number. Many civilians are wondering why the stock market has been going up. I'd say two things are going on. First is this deep belief that the pandemic is just a temporary interruption of a great economy, and that once it's gone, everything is going to be okay. I find that very hard to believe for reasons I've talked about before. It's going to take some time to escape from the economic damage of the collapse, all the shuttered businesses and shattered confidence. Lots of people are still afraid to step outside. Expanded unemployment benefits will end in July, and a lot of people are going to find themselves in desperate straits. The other stimulus to stocks is the trillions of dollars the Federal Reserve has pumped into the financial markets to keep them from imploding. That money has nowhere to go other than financial assets, who at this point, Wall Street optimism notwithstanding, would invest in real things. This is a great moment if you're a vulture investor, picking over the bodies of the dead and wounded, but it's not such a great time otherwise. And I'm not a perma-bear who always thinks we're on the verge of collapse. I just can't understand this optimism. Oh, and Wall Street doesn't seem to care that there's a massive rebellion against the whole stinking order underway in our streets, with what must be millions risking violent cops and a deadly virus. Speaking of cops, this is a good segue to the first segment. Before we get to Alex Vitale, though, I thought I'd play this clip of Bob Kroll, president of the Minneapolis Police Union, speaking at a Trump rally in October 2019. I hear some arguments that cops have always been this violent and that there's nothing new about having Trump in the Oval Office. If you have any doubt that the president has had any influence over the cops' behavior over the last week or two, this should undermine it.
1: The mayor said uh, the president wasn't welcome, but the police federation of Minneapolis begs to differ. I hope you notice the signs in front. We wanted to light it up so the mayor could see it every day in and out of his office. We're seeing a lot of red cop shirts out here tonight because of the hypocrisy. They don't want the police here when it's a Republican that stands up for the police. But if it's a Democrat, we get a different story, right? Our cops are here as much as they could be in full force from across the state. I brought leaders of, every, uh, of the major labor groups with me tonight, and we're pleased to see this turnout. We're here because of the way the president turned this around. The Obama administration and the handcuffing and oppression of police was despicable. The the first thing President Trump did when he took office was turn that around, got rid of the holder Loretta Lynch regime and decided to start taking, letting the cops do their job, put the handcuffs on the criminals instead of us. That's our job for this president to give back to him what he's been doing for us over the next year.
0: Give it back to him over the next year indeed. That was Bob Kroll, president of the Minneapolis Police Union, speaking at a Trump rally in October 2019. Now on to Alex Vitale. Alex, who is suddenly now all over the mainstream media, is a professor of sociology at Brooklyn College who specializes in police. His book, The End of Policing, was published by Verso in October 2017. There are no copies of the physical book in stock in the U.S. or U.K., so great has been the demand for it in recent days, although they'll be restocked soon. Verso reports that there have been 75,000 downloads of the book over the last week, which is quite amazing for a book whose message is that maybe the best way to reform policing is to end it. Here's Alex Vitelli. Something seems to have shifted a bit in public attitudes, elite attitudes towards uh, the cops. Um, Are you seeing this?
2: Absolutely. When the problems sort of around policing emerged as a public issue five, six years ago with Ferguson and Eric Garner in New York, people were told, don't worry, don't worry, we're going to implement some new training, we're going to have some police community encounter sessions, we're going to have a little, little tweak to the police accountability systems, and everything will be fine. And fast, fast forward six years, and nothing has changed. And so all the sort of normal liberal tropes about can't we just work this out, can't we all just work together, we need the police to be our friends, we need the community to trust the police, all of a sudden none of that seems to make any sense anymore. So everyone is scrambling around trying to figure out how to get out from under this crisis and that's created some really interesting political openings.
0: The police reaction to the protests has been it just seems extremely violent. Their, their first instinct is to charge people and beat them. Is this normal practice, or uh, is there something different about this time?
2: Turns out they don't like it when people criticize them and, and question their basic legitimacy and validation. Yeah, th- this is a little over the top. Now, partly I think there's a contagion effect in the sense that police saw protesters in Minneapolis burning down a police station and and fighting with police, and so then they project that onto every protest around the country. And so they're amped up for a big fight. So in some places, there is active resistance to the policing, and people do want to cause mayhem, and in other places they don't, but then they're still barraged by all this aggressive policing.
0: Has it been any effect of having what uh, Cornell West called on the Anderson Cooper show the other day, the neo-fascist thug in the White House?
2: I think that's part of it. I think that's part of the level of resistance and the intensity of it. And then, of course, I think it's part of the policing. And and for me, the, the images of police shooting pepper balls at working journalists, arresting working journalists is a sign of that. Kind of level of impunity and also resentment. They're like, how dare you criticize us and shooting people sitting on their front porches with, with rubber bullets and stuff like that? They really feel, feel like their whole worldview is, is uh, under threat and they resent the hell out of it, and they're acting that out on the public.
0: And they're driving cars into crowds. I mean, I heard that in Boston last night. I saw that in Brooklyn a couple of days ago. It's remarkable.
2: Yeah, the one in Brooklyn was about two blocks from my home. It was just horrifying to see that. The lives of those protesters do not matter to those police. They really don't. And to think that we're going to fix this by giving them yet another round of anti-bias training, or to set up some police community meeting is just ludicrous. Um, so I'm I'm thankful that we're trying to get at a deeper conversation about this.
0: You uh, said that the Minneapolis Police Department did all the sensitivity training and all you know the mindfulness work and all that, and obviously it had no effect. What do these kinds of programs do? What do they Tell the cops how to, how to reprogram themselves? What, what's the, the, the thrust of these things and what effect do they have?
2: So, there's a whole industry now, right, that has been pushing what we call procedural justice reforms. Everybody who was part of the Obama Justice Department is now either in academia or these nonprofits who are proposing and selling all this training. So they do things like implicit bias training, which to me is just the most infuriating thing imaginable. This, this idea that the problem of racism in American policing is unconscious racial bias by a few individual officers. And they get millions of dollars to go in and make police sit in a classroom where they lecture them about American racism And then they give them this psychology mumbo jumbo about implicit bias. And then it's like, and could you just shoot fewer black people? This is totally spurious. And it just provides political cover for the massive expansion of police power that we've seen over the last 40 years. And these people are actively undermining our movements every time they tell us, don't worry, we're going to give them the training same people sell these the modules about bringing the police and community together so that they can establish trust. So they orchestrate these police community meetings where they facilitate it and they get the police to say, oh, I'm sorry about the history of the racism in American policing. And the community says we've been so traumatized by police. And then they shake hands and never speak to each other again and nothing changes. You know, they, they at at its best it includes some things to tweak use of force policies and create more transparency. And the very best of them have shown very small little effects in the reduced in reduced, let's say, complaints against police, but they will never say, let's legalize drugs, let's get cops out of schools, let's develop community-based, you know, anti-violence efforts to deal with gang violence. Because that would take away funding from the police department that's paying for their training programs and modules.
0: How do we sort out the effects of you know, personalities, the kinds of people who are drawn to be cops, from the, the structural nature of the job? I mean, is it, is it a combination of those things that make police so brutal, or how do, we, how do we think about that?
2: The research shows that it's not really about what comes in the front door Departments do some screening or whatever for some of the worst abuses, but the, it's not that successful. The institution rewards aggression and the ability and willingness to use violence. That's the nature of the institution. And maybe more importantly, right, they have been told by the political establishment in both parties that they are what's holding society together. We've turned every damn problem under the sun over to them to manage like they're the only possible resource that could be deployed to deal with problems. And so they believe that if they give an inch, there will be chaos, that, that society will come unglued. And so they've, they've become invested in this kind of right-wing, thin blue line ideology that says that authoritarian interventions, the constant threat of policing, incarceration and violence is the only way to produce social order. And then to see liberal big city mayors give them ever more resources while claiming to be progressive, is just makes me want to pull my hair out. You cannot be a progressive mayor and add more money to the policing budget because what you're doing is you're just – you're giving strength to an ideology that says that all the problems in society are the result of – you know, individual and group moral failure that will only respond to punitive interventions. And that undermines any effort to actually use ameliorative interventions. So they're empowering the most reactive forces in society while claiming they're trying to be more progressive.
0: Yeah, you mentioned liberal big city mayors. Do they have any control over their police force or is the police? Uh, some sort of independent element that operates pretty much as it wants.
2: Well, it's somewhere in between, right? I mean, they do have control. They just refuse to use it because they're politically afraid that the, the police are an independent political force that is in bed with a lot of other interests. And, you know, so that these mayors have said, well we just we got to be pro-police if we want to build a certain kind of political coalition there's a great book policing los angeles about that talks a lot about how tom bradley mastered this you know he's like oh i i need to be pro global corporate development and pro-police in order to form this coalition and then i can give a few dollars to like black contractors and bring some blacks in the city government And otherwise, I'm going to produce mass homelessness, you know, mass youth violence problems, unemployment, et cetera. That he didn't want to do anything about. He just turned it over
0: to the police. Yeah, I was amazed to see uh, de Blasio uh, blaming the crowd for having a police uh, car run into them. You know, he made
2: this kind of initial effort in his election campaign to signal he was going to be a little tougher on the police. The police, mostly because of contract negotiations, let him have it. And then he just he collapsed from that moment on. Nothing the police did was worthy of criticism every year. Let's give them more money. Let's increase the headcount. He completely capitulated to the right wing, the most reactionary elements of the city. And so that's when he lost all credibility for me.
0: And the police still hate him anyway.
2: And that's the irony, right? The police still hate him anyway. It's like, just take them on. Just take them on. But I think he's showing a deeper liberal stripe, right, which says, oh, if we can just get the police to be professional and enforce the law neutrally, you know, that's good for everyone. And, you know, he's he's a white ethnic outer borough New Yorker who's uh who's basically wants the police to keep property values up.
0: Well, the liberal approach has long been. They want more professionalism in the police. You know, the right wing just says, unleash them and beat heads in. And then the the liberals say, let's, you know, give them more training, professionalize the force, but they end up just beating heads in. That's
2: right. So that's why that's the moment we're at, right, is that both of those now are seeming to be in disrepute So we need this new approach, which is not new, but is at least getting a hearing. And the form it's taking is this kind of defund the police movement. We used to call it things like invest divest or justice reinvestment, which is just, you know, you got cities in the U.S. where 30, 40, 50 percent of the budget goes to the police department. Let's take that money and put it to work in other ways. That's the sort of like a soft edge of a kind of deeper police abolition analysis. And I think there's an, an openness now to that because people have seen through the, the superficial liberal reforms
0: that don't work. Well, no, say you're a big city mayor like de Blasio or I don't remember the name of the mayor of Minneapolis, but you know, wh- how would you begin taking on the police in a political sense? I, I want to get back to the defunding issue, but just... How to mobilize uh, a a different kind of of, of thinking uh, uh, and policy towards the police? What kind of political moves would a big city mayor take?
2: One of the mistakes that some people make is to frame the whole thing about cops are bad. And it's pretty easy to do that in the current moment. But I think what's important is to lift up the alternatives, to lift up the alternatives. What are we doing to support community interventions to solve our problems? So, in, so instead of just wagging his finger at the police, I mean, he meet, needs to make a more take a more critical tone towards the police. He also needs to be saying, okay, this is what we could be doing for our young people. They're facing tremendous challenges going forward. Instead of eliminating the summer jobs youth program, I'm going to double its size. I'm going to create community-based trauma counseling. I'm going to invest in violence interruption programs. I'm going to open up more community centers. And I'm going to pay for that, in part, by cutting a billion dollars out of the police department budget.
0: Well, now that uh, austerity is uh, going to be taking over urban budgets, this would be a, a propitious time to think about cutting the funding for these characters.
2: Now, that's what I said. You know, I had an op-ed in the Daily News a couple of weeks ago that said just that. Now is the time. Just, instead of laying all the cuts on youth programs, education department, health services, take it from the police department and set some of it aside to, to do these kinds of community interventions.
0: I was looking at some of the stats on the number of police per capita. And uh, New York and Chicago and a few other cities have very high, like over 40 uh, police per 10,000 people. Uh, Other cities like uh, Seattle and, uh, you know, have half that. Los Angeles. Yeah, like half that. That's right. What difference does that make to uh, the style of policing?
2: Well, it can have an effect. You know, there was this kind of sense of, well, LAPD has to run hard you know, and take charge quickly because they're spread out. They have twice as much area and half as many per capita officers. But really, um, in New York, there's just tremendous inefficiency in policing. They, you know, insist on the two officer cars to make it easier to do the job. And you just don't need it. L.A. works just fine with half the number of officers per capita. And there's no reason why we couldn't do that in other
0: places. But it seems like the, uh, the NYPD's strategy is whenever a demonstration or something uh, that they perceive as a threat develops, they send in armies, just hordes of cops. That's their strategy, right? Yes, the NYPD,
2: in part just because of the size of the city, has an amazing capacity to just throw cops at problems, uh, which means that they're often not very efficient they could manage things more efficiently, but that's really not the issue. It's that they, they've just decided to turn every kind of political problem into a policing problem and then just throw a lot of cops
0: at it. Okay. Let's get into more, some detail uh, on on defunding. What what would that look like? How would you repurpose the money? Sure. So in, in New York,
2: we're proposing a billion dollars over five years. And, um, that could come mostly just from attrition, just by not hiring more police and let the normal retirements take place. New York City spends spent about $700 million on police overtime last year, which is about $200 million more than was budgeted. So that you could get $200 million additional a year just by reining in out-of-control overtime. And the irony of that is that when de Blasio pushed through the hiring of more police about four or five years ago, he said, oh, it's so that we can reduce overtime. We'll have more regular officers on regular pay and overtime went up every year. So it's one of the ways that the NYPD flexes its political muscle is that it just uses up whatever money it wants to. And then you could look at some specific specific programs. I mean, if you want to start getting into the second billion dollars, which we need to do. Let's get rid of vice units, narcotics units, anti gang units, anti crime units. Let's get the police out of the schools. Those are the kinds of things that we could look for on the policing side. And then in response to that, we need to have safe injection facilities, medicalized drug treatment available on demand increases for supportive housing, community-based violence interruption programs, you know, there's a lot of very specific interventions that, you know, that I talk about in my book.
0: And the, the role of police unions, for people like us, it's kind of hard to uh, be critical of the unions, it runs against all our instincts, but it does seem that they're fairly sinister. What, what about the role of the police unions and what should we do about them?
2: So it's very toxic, the role of police unions on the political side, right? These are uh, Unions are not just negotiating wages and working conditions, especially public sector unions. They're engaged in in political organizing. My union at CUNY does that. The trick is we have to make their political organizing toxic. There are too many politicians who blithely take their money when campaigns and their endorsements – and then they're implicated in this mess. And I've been saying for years, we need to figure out and uh, who's taking that money and those endorsements, and we have to make that a liability for them. Well, this week, so far, six elected officials in New York have sworn off the, the funding that they've already received and have written checks to bail funds and mutual aid efforts instead. They went back and said, oh, look, I got $1,500 from the PBA, and they tweeted out a copy of the check that they wrote to a bail fund for that same amount. And that's what we have to do. And there are folks trying to organize this. There's an effort in California, and Texas, and we need to ramp that up in New York.
0: And similar with the corrections officers' unions, right? Uh, Absolutely. Exactly
2: the same. Exactly the same.
0: That was amazing. I didn't know that these uh, four or five politicians are writing checks to bail funds that's pretty great
2: six uh, six was the latest number i saw there's a group that's keeping count and trying to like push others that is really amazing because that is a real slap in the face to the cops
0: so this moment seems promising for people who want to ref- really reform policing very seriously but uh, you know, then the looting and the burning um will be used uh to uh, defend the role of the cops how do we answer that defense?
2: Yeah, it's it's it definitely creates a challenge. It puts it on the front page, but then it creates a really difficult framing to deal with. Um, I think first of all, we have to say, well, policing didn't prevent that from happening. Policing caused that to happen, and it's time to develop more preventative strategies of trying to figure out what's driving these problems. You know, these are political problems that need to be solved politically not through ever more aggressive policing.
0: So you're doing lots of interviews uh, with mainstream outlets. Are they more receptive to your point of view than in uh, past crises, you know, like four or five years ago when Black Lives Matter got going?
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. It's been remarkable. There are still certain liberal bastions that won't talk to me, NPR, Brian Lehrer in New York, you know, uh, and it's been kind of amazing. The, the diversity of mainstream outlets that I've had access to. And that's what happens in a crisis. They are, you know, both scrambling around trying to figure out how do, we, how do we get out from under this. And, you know, because the book has been out for a while and has a following, and, and I was able to quickly get some pieces out in The Guardian, The Nation, and other places that, that I'm out there as an option.
0: That was Alex Vitale, professor of sociology at Brooklyn College. His book, The End of Policing, was published by Verso in 2017. Alex mentioned getting cops out of the schools. I don't know the stats for other cities, but in New York we have 5,500 cops in the schools. They're unarmed but uniformed, a visual shock for someone like me who grew up in less policed times. That's ten times the number of school psychologists, almost twice the number of guidance counselors, and four times the number of social workers. With about 1.1 million students in the public school, the cop-student ratio works out to 50 per 10,000, which is significantly higher than the city as a whole, and New York has one of the highest cop-to-population ratios in the country. This is brutalizing and perverse. Meanwhile, Philadelphia Mayor Jim Kenney, whose cops have been running wild for days on end, is proposing a slash funding for the city's main civilian police oversight board and for anti-violence programs, while boosting funding for the police. We badly need a radically different approach. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. some of He'd Send in the Army from the Gang of Four, a masterful exploration of the relationship between patriarchy at home and militarism in the broader world. And now a departure from crisis-oriented programming for a look at tech worker organizing. Over the last two or three years, we've seen an upsurge in militancy in that sector, which had previously been a quiet one. What's been happening and why? Here's Ben Tarnoff with some answers. Ben Tarnoff is a tech worker, He prefers to occlude the details, and co-founder of Logic Magazine, which covers technology and aims to be neither Luddite nor celebratory. It describes itself as a print magazine with a small digital footprint. You can find it on the web at logicmag.io. And that's where you can find his essay, The Making of the Tech Worker Movement, which we talk about in the interview. Ben Tarnoff. It's kind of funny to think of you know labor activism at the present moment, but uh, this is as good of a time as any. Uh, but let, let's do the uh, set up the background for all this. Uh, the tech world has long been really anti union, starting with noise, you know, going back to Intel's early days, and also a labor force that, at least historically, has not liked to think of itself as labor as workers. Um, so yeah, what is the this the kind of you know sociological ideological background for um, the emergence of this tech uh, worker movement?
3: Well, as you said, historically, the tech industry has been notoriously anti-union, and a lot of the practices, managerial practices that were innovated in the industry were specifically designed to suppress union activity. So things like stock options, uh, you know, cafeterias, certain techniques around more horizontal, less hierarchical work teams, these all have deep roots in Silicon Valley as a way to really to diffuse organizing efforts. So that doesn't mean, of course, that there have not been organizing efforts throughout the history of the tech industry. And I think that's really important to call attention to the fact that labor struggle has found a way despite those constraints. However, it's safe to say in the last few years that the level of rank and file mobilization across the tech industry has hit really an unprecedented level where we're seeing tech workers of all different kinds take collective action
0: around a range of different issues at a range of different companies. Let's just step back for a moment. Um, There used to be a lot of manufacturing in the Silicon Valley, and that's mostly gone now. But uh, was there any kind of traditional labor organizing in those days when they, they made things?
3: Yeah, it's interesting. So production workers within Silicon Valley often organized against... Unsafe labor conditions, of course, these are very, very toxic working conditions when you're working in a semiconductor plant, but they never formally unionized. Now, production firms did often contract with unionized labor uh, in, the, in the building trades, for instance, but the core workers never actually managed to formally unionize. There's an interesting shift, however, in the early 90s when uh, primarily thanks to uh, SEIU, subcontracted janitors at a number of Silicon Valley campuses begin to unionize in large numbers. And that's really the beginning, I would say, of
0: the kind of modern uh, labor drive in Silicon Valley. And did that have any influence on people further up the uh, status and pay ladder?
3: Well, this is really one of the key points that I try to make in my piece, which is there are a series of union struggles by subcontracted service workers like janitors and security guards in the mid-2010s, where the pace of those struggles really picks up. And there are a number of wins in in quick succession, number of unionization wins. And there are a considerable number of full-time office workers, folks like software engineers, who participate in these struggles, who lend their solidarity, who join house visits, who distribute union material on Silicon Valley campuses, who serve as liaisons between union organizers and the folks who are trying to unionize. And through this experience, they really have their consciousness transformed. And I'd argue that that's a really important catalyst for the tech worker movement to expand beyond that subcontracted periphery
0: of the industry and into the salaried core did something happen in the labor market or the management uh, techniques that, uh, that uh, made people more receptive to that kind of consciousness?
3: It's interesting because there are so many factors, I think, that do contribute to a greater receptivity to class rhetoric and workplace-based collective action among workers who you would typically suspect would not be susceptible to it, such as these you know, relatively well-paid software engineers at firms like Google. I think among the factors is the gradual proletarianization of technical labor, even at these very high-end firms. And one way that manifests is the growing reliance on subcontracted labor, even for technical tasks that would have previously been a matter of uh, highly paid direct employees. There is a contracting firm... On contracting that estimates that about 40 to 50% of tech firms in Silicon Valley, their workforce is subcontracted. And Google in particular has a very large number of subcontracted workers, more subcontracted at this point than full-time employees. So that's
0: a trend that is very much on people's minds these days. These are vastly profitable companies. That's not like they really need to cut costs, but they just, I guess too much is not enough for them.
3: That's right, these are vastly profitable companies. I mean they're they're typically you know the rankings shift, but they're typically the the largest companies by market capitalization in the world. But you know they they have to keep finding new sources of of profit and keep Im- improving the, those profits. and that's certainly been a driving force at a place like Google not just to embrace more and more contract employees, but to move into other lines of business for instance, cloud, that has actually been the occasion for a lot of these confrontations with their workforce, because when you move into cloud services, you start doing business with the Pentagon, with law enforcement, with security services, and
0: that's been a matter of some controversy. Yeah, so things started accelerating 2017, 2018. So yeah, describe that acceleration. What got it going and what forms did it take?
3: Well, an important piece of this story, of course, is the Trump election which is not the whole story, but again, is an important catalyst to point to, because this is a moment when rank and file tech workers of this kind of full-time office layer, this relatively privileged layer of tech workers, begin to feel a greater sense of distance between themselves and the leaders of their companies. Because, you know, as you recall, a lot of Silicon Valley leaders denounced Trump throughout the campaign. And then as soon as he was elected, swiftly accommodated him, made all these conciliatory noises. And this was a very disillusioning and even radicalizing experience for many of these tech employees. On the other hand, they start to feel a greater sense of moral urgency around the social harms that the technologies that they're building are inflicting or could inflict. In particular, there's a lot of concern among tech employees in the immediate aftermath of the Trump election that tech companies will be enlisted by the administration to build the so-called Muslim registry. So these two elements are a pretty important piece of the puzzle in terms of why tech employees are getting more mobilized. But the question that they haven't quite answered in the immediate aftermath of the Trump election is how to make change. In other words, there's a lot more energy about getting mobilized, about getting active. But where to put that energy is still a bit of an open question. And what you see over the course of 2017, and really 2018, I would say, is when the movement achieves escape velocity, is that that question is resolved pretty definitively in the direction of workplace-based collective action, that this is the best mechanism for making change.
0: Well, that's an uh, old-fashioned labor movement uh, insight there. Is it... Uh... How are they picking up these things? Are, are they, they studying the history of the labor movement or, or what? Where is it coming from?
3: Absolutely. I'd say self-education about the history of the labor movement is a really important part of this. People are taking it on themselves to learn about that history and trying to apply it to new contexts. Again, those relationships that they've forged with their more working class subcontracted colleagues are also really critical for learning about the power and the mechanics of collective action. But I'd also argue that these experiences of alienation and antagonism with management over what they were building and who they were building it for also brought attention the proletarian elements in their contradictory class location to them. In other words, they started to feel their lack of meaningful input into the investment and production decisions of the firm and began to feel that although they certainly earn higher salaries than average, they are, in important respects, workers. And that's, I would say, the most critical realization that comes out of these experiences is that tech workers are also workers.
0: You've mentioned organizers. Who exactly is doing the organizing? Are it traditional unions or, or freelancers or how's it working? Who's responsible and how are they doing it?
3: Well, these are folks you know, at these companies, workers at these companies, and they come from a range of backgrounds. You know, People can have traditional organizing experience. There are definitely former union organizers who are now doing this work at tech companies. Um, there are also folks who are you know, getting resources and advice from union organizers. There are a lot of unions um, that have lent their support uh, CWA in particular now has a initiative called Code, which is devoted to organizing uh, tech workers and game industry workers. Uh, so you know they're they're getting that type of knowledge and strategy about organizing techniques from a range of sources. But of course, in many of these firms, the terrain is different than traditional organizing terrain. There have been A handful of smaller workplaces that have unionized, which is very encouraging. Uh, Kickstarter in particular, early this year, voted to unionize. However, at these larger firms like Google, formal unionization is perceived to be a little further off. So how people organize in that environment when the immediate goal is is not formal unionization, it's a bit trickier.
0: Tech workers are classic, especially the, the better paid ones, are classic inhabitants of a class that's been, or a substratum that's been very much in the news lately, the professional managerial class. As you write in the piece, this is a very contradictory location. You can identify upwards or identify downwards. So is it the proletarianization that uh, the, the conditions of labor that has uh, caused people to start identifying downwards more than upwards?
3: I think that process of proletarianization through, for instance, the greater reliance on subcontracted workers is an important element of why people are able to identify downwards. But I think even without that process unfolding, their position is quite contradictory. As we've discussed, there are plenty of proletarian elements in their class experience that have to do, again, with the lack of control over their work and how their workplaces are organized uh, that they began to feel more acutely as confrontations with management develop because these contradictions can be managed and uh, concealed by management in quote-unquote normal times. It's only when struggle takes place and reaches a certain pitch that how the workplace is organized, how power operates within the workplace is revealed. And there are a number of people that I've had conversations with who actually describe this process, this new perception that's made possible through engaging in struggle and seeing how management responds.
0: Women and uh, workers of color have played disproportionate roles in all this, right?
3: That's right. Women and people of color have often been the leaders of these mobilizations. And in my piece, I argue that that's because these are people who occupy more proletarianized positions uh, within this already very contradictory class location. Women and people of color in tech obviously face harassment, discrimination, earn lower salaries on average. The tech industry, particularly in Silicon Valley, often pays lip service to these diversity uh, initiatives, but the numbers have budged very little over the course of the years. And In my piece, I argue that drawing on Stuart Hall's famous formulation that that race is modality in which classes live, that women and people of color who occupy these middle layers within the tech industry experience the proletarian elements of their class experience through race and gender. And I think that in many cases has made them uh, more eager to engage in collective action and to embrace this
0: workplace-based collective action model. The cliche tech worker is you know white guy uh, with libertarian tendencies, uh, you know, Elon Musk or Peter Thiel or something like that. Was that always a fair characterization? Uh, uh, was that truer in the past than it is now? It's always been a bit more complicated. If I had to
3: describe the the political orientation of the tech industry, I'd say it's it's mostly folks who are casually liberal, um, who vote Democrat, but maybe don't think about politics too frequently. There is, of course, a constituency for libertarian politics within the industry. I would argue that constituency is is greater in the executive and investor class than among the rank and file. There's also, I think, a a somewhat scarier and uglier uh, political current, which exists, unfortunately, both within the rank and file and the executive and investor class, which is the far right and the alt-right. And those currents have been emboldened and intensified by the Trump election. I think there's no doubt about that. But it's also important to note that there's long been a social democratic and left-wing current within the industry. Something I often point to is that in 2016, you know, many of the, the most frequent donors to the Bernie Sanders campaign worked for companies like Google, Amazon. Microsoft, and so on. So those politics have actually been around in the industry for a while, but we actually haven't seen them
0: manifest quite as strongly as we have recently. Yeah, there's that, what, Fred Tucker, is that his, the guy i thinking up who had the book about the, uh, the origins of a lot of uh, Silicon Valley culture in the whole Earth catalog. But oh, also yeah. The commun- Turner, the communal, yeah. Yeah, the communal sensibility uh, coming out of, you know, the hippied of the 60s and early 70s. Does that have any effect? Does that linger um, or is that uh, like ancient history by now?
3: It's interesting because as, as Fred talks about in that book, there is a certain political ambiguity to the communitarianism of the 60s and 70s as it's filtered into Silicon Valley. Obviously, the dominant strain of it is the California ideology, essentially how the hippie cultures of the 60s and 70s become Reaganized, for lack of a better term. And that, I would say, is probably still the dominant manifestation of how the counterculture lives on um, in Silicon Valley mind. However, as you're alluding to, it is a politically ambiguous phenomenon. And I think there are uh, left wing and kind of more solidaristic elements to that legacy that, that people can draw on. I think more broadly, there is a utopianism to Silicon Valley, which I, is easy to criticize and make fun of, and it, I'm sure deserves both, but it can also be quite radicalizing because when people feel that they're there to change the world and to make the world a better place, and they're given very strong evidence that the executives at their companies are helping to make the world a worse place, that disillusioning moment can feed a radicalizing dynamic. And that's something I think we've
0: seen a fair bit with the tech worker movement in recent years. Yeah, I've been struck for a while by uh, the contrast between the late 90s boom, which was filled with a lot of utopian rhetoric and ambition. some of it nonsense, of course, but there was something to it there about changing the world we live in, changing the nature of work, you know, flattening hierarchies, all that sort of uh, much more cooperative sense of um, how to organize Labor with the recent bubble, which I guess is now deceased, uh, which brought us you know Uber and uh, Airbnb. I mean all it drained all, all that utopian content. A better ways to hail a cab or order a sandwich. Um, does this have any effect on, on the consciousness of the workers there? Well, a lot of people go into the
3: tech industry because they want to build useful things that make people's lives better, and there is often a conflict that arises between that desire and what management wants. You know, I think a lot of these people didn't study computer science in school or didn't teach themselves how to program on nights and weekends because they wanted to build better ways to spy on people in order to sell them useless things. You know, there really is an idealism among many of these people who work in the industry which feels frustrated and constrained by the imperatives that are coming down from management. So I think, again, this frustrated utopianism or frustrated idealism can point to some genuinely radical directions. It doesn't always. It's obviously a matter of political and ideological struggle which way that frustrated utopianism gets polarized. But I
0: think it can actually produce some pretty constructive results. And what's the reaction of management been to uh, this uh, upwelling of militancy? I think at first it's safe to say
3: that they were taken by surprise. You know, I've often thought that one of the things that has made management's response to these mobilizations interesting is that I think many of the people who populate the executive class in the industry actually believe that these companies are like families, that they themselves have bought into the ideology that masks and mystifies the divisions within these workplaces. However, that quickly wore off. And we've seen a wave of retaliation, first at Google and then at Amazon, starting last year, where known organizers have been targeted and pushed out, fired from these companies for engaging and organizing. And I expect that that retaliation will continue.
0: And now, taking to the very present, uh, what is work from home and the likely dispersion of a good bit of the Silicon Valley workforce and other tech centers as well, uh, the other Silicon Valleys around the country? What effect is this going to have on uh, the, uh, the consciousness and organizing efforts?
3: It's a great question. And it's a question that organizers are asking themselves right now and trying to figure out this new terrain. On the one hand, there are some really obvious challenges here, building face-to-face personal relationships rooted in trust and mutual understanding are so critical to organizing efforts, obviously not just in tech, but in any industry. How you manage to do something like a successful one-on-one in a virtual environment, it's a bit more challenging. Also, how one manages to coordinate some of these higher profile type actions like the Google walkout of November 2018 in a more distributed virtual environment is going to be a challenge. On the other hand, there are certainly opportunities. One of the things I think we'll certainly see, which Zuckerberg hinted at in his announcement, is that the embrace of more remote work will be accompanied by this push to reduce salaries across the industry. Zuckerberg has talked about how they'll be localizing people's salaries based on the the market that they're living in. This creates another issue to organize and agitate around, no doubt. And I think there will be other opportunities in a fully distributed environment for reaching out to folks and having safe off-site conversations of the kind that formerly would have required going to a cafe or a bar. It's a bit easier to, to have those types of conversations when everyone's at home on the internet all day. So we'll see. It's going to be a
0: tricky environment, but not a hopeless one. I was Ben Tarnoff, a tech worker and co-founder of Logic Magazine, which you can find on the web at logicmag.io. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out there. Some of Money Machine by 100 gecks. Warning, this is not easy listening. Till next week, bye. Trying to go to bed i up for days I'm trying to get it out i it all before i we'll said it once again on battle all below i <laughs>